Genesis chapter 1 verse verse 14 we are continuing with the theme that we touched on last Sunday morning the attributes of God last Sunday we considered the omniscience of God the fact that God knows everything doesn't have to learn it either he just knows it the parallel concept is the omnipotence of God. God is not only all-knowing, he is all-powerful. That is demonstrated all the way down the opening chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14, God said, let there be light in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for light in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Abraham once asked the question, is anything too hard for the law? Well, the answer to that, because is yes. Strange as it may seem. When we speak of the fact that God is omnipotent and that he is all-powerful, that does not necessarily mean that God can do anything. He never violates his own rules. When he created the universe, he set up certain rules and conditions and terms. He gave certain powers to certain creatures in this creation. And by so doing, he sovereignly limited himself. Never breaks his own rules. He sets up the rules of the game, but he doesn't violate those rules. Because if he did, if God cheated, then he would violate another of his attributes, which is his holiness. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, I think it is his book on miracles, very interesting and a fascinating book, he makes this observation. You may attribute miracles to God, but not nonsense. He said, it is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to do both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power 
meets an obstacle. But because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we talk it of God, uh, that is something worth remembering. When God uh, works a miracle, he doesn't violate the laws of nature in order to perform that miracle. Probably if Adam had never fallen into sin, he would have been able to do those things anyway. Quite natural. There are already things that we do today that our forefathers would look upon as the blackest of magic. I mean, to be able to sit in your living room and just press a button and all of a sudden there you, you can see something happening that's uh, taking place in China. Our, our great-grandparents would not have seen that to be possible. We haven't violated any natural laws. We've just learned to use them. That's all. For instance, when the Lord Jesus changed water into wine, he didn't violate any natural law. He just speeded them up. If you plant a, a, a vine in your garden, it will eventually turn water into wine. Its roots will go down into the soil. It will pick up water and nourishment from the soil. It will grow a grape, you take the grape off and it will eventually ferment and <clears throat> over a period of time you will have changed water into wine. You haven't uh, the law didn't violate any natural laws, you just speeded them up. Perhaps one day when we get our resurrection bodies and when the universe is redeemed and restored to its original pristine condition. And man is once again reconstituted uh, as man inhabited by God, as God intended man to be. We probably will be able to do things that Jesus could do, walk upon water and walk through walls. That was not hard for him. He didn't violate any laws of nature. He just utilized laws of nature we don't know anything about. When he performed what were miracles. Now the omnipotence of God is obvious in the realm of creation. It's obvious in the resurrection of Christ. And it is obvious in the results of conversion. Those are three areas where we can contemplate the fantastic truth of the omnipotence of God, that God is all-powerful. When we think of the omnipotence of God in the realm of creation, we consider, first of all, his relationship to what we call nat natural phenomena, the world of nature. Take, for instance, the planet on which we live. It's only a baby planet. As uh, things go in space, it has a diameter of about 7,927 
miles, it weighs about 6.6 trillion tons. That sounds like an awful lot to us. Surface is mostly water. Crust is about 1,800 miles thick. Temperature at the inner core is about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's uh, chasing around the sun at the speed of 67,000 miles per hour. You've already traveled quite a distance since you got up this morning, but you probably weren't aware of it. It is blanketed by an atmosphere that weighs about six quadrillion tons. Now, let's just give us some beginning ideas of the omnipotence of God. To be able to have uh, some real estate the size of our planet into space and start it spinning and chasing around an orbit must call for a great deal more power than we can ever possibly imagine. But of course our sun, our, our world is nothing. It's part of a solar system. Our system, solar system consists of one star, nine planets, 32 moons, 100,000 asteroids, and about 100 billion comets. Now that's just our particular solar system, that's just our backyard in space. The entire thing uh, has, uh, has a volume that is about equal to 50 billion billion Earths. That's just the solar system of which our Earth is just a tiny part. Our planet is about, I think it's about the fifth biggest. By no means the biggest. The inner planets are all very small. The outer planets are all very large. But there it is. We're, we're part of a solar system, every corner of which proclaims the omnipotence of God. In the beginning it says God created the heaven and the earth. Just ten words. One very simple sentence. But the concept behind it baffles our imagination. Now our little planet chases around the sun. The sun weighs about 2.2 billion, billion, billion tons. Uh, if you can imagine uh, that kind of thing. It's equal in in uh, weight uh, and size to about 332,270 planets the size of ours. So uh, the sun is, uh, is a fairly large object in the sky. Has uh, enormous temperature. When we see a, uh, a, a, a astronomers tell us of a, of a sun flare <coughs> suddenly licks out from the surface of the sun into space, uh, a sun flare has the energy output equal to the explosion of one billion hydrogen bombs. So that gives you some idea of the just casual energy of the sun. The sun itself daily has an output of energy equal to the burning of 600 million tons of hydrogen, which are every day converted into helium. And yet its mass is so large that although it is 
consuming energy at this enormous rate, it probably can go on doing it without any perceptible change for another five billion years. So we don't need to have any worries that the sun's going to burn itself out by the end of next week. The, the amount of matter that's in the sun is called by uh, astronomers one solar mass. Uh, they use the sun, in other words, as a kind of a measuring rod for other stars. It's an average star, stars go, it's an ordinary sized star. And so they call the the uh, amount of matter in the sun as one solar mass as a means of measuring the mass of other stars in space. There are some stars in space with a solar mass equal to 40 or 50 times that of our sun. A young 50 solar mass star shines with the brightness equivalent to one million of our sun. In other words, you see the sun as it climbs up to its zenith on a cloudless day and it pours down that brilliant light upon this planet. It bathes the whole place in energy and light and warmth. It's just a bathing. Some, some stars have a brightness equivalent to a million suns like ours. Just imagine the omnipotence of a god that can put things like that into space. The near na neighborhood of uh, our particular galaxy, within our galaxy, the near neighbor stars, stars that are more or less close to us in terms of space, within 500 light years of uh, us in space, uh, there are some very conspicuous objects star Hadar is 12,000 times brighter than the sun. Uh, there's a star uh, Actrux which is uh, 30,000 times hotter than our sun. There's a star called Aldebaran that has a diameter 800 times the size of our sun. All these uh, figures, perhaps, just we just sit and blink our eyes and wonder what it's all about. But it just demonstrates for us the omnipotence of our God. A God who can toss stars into space as though they were nothing is an omnipotent God. Eventually, our sun will burn out. They, astronomers figure at the present rate that the sun is consuming its mass, it will, it will, about five billion years from now, it will have consumed all its hydrogen. Then it will start to consume its helium, converting it into carbon and oxygen. And uh, around about five billion years from now, it will become what astronomers call a red giant. Its atmosphere will begin to expand, and it will swell out and melt the Earth's continents and boil away its seas. And, uh, it will then be, be, begin to shrink. It will come down to the size of our planet and it will have become what astronomers call a white dwarf. It will have enormous density when it becomes a white dwarf. If you could pick up 
just one handful of its body. You go out to your backyard, you, you scoop up a handful of soil. When the sun becomes a white raw, one handful of its matter, it weighs 16 tons. That's, that's happening all the time in space. Stars are burning out. They're becoming red giants. They're shrinking into wet, into <coughs> white dwarfs. That's just moderate stars. Bigger stars have a different fate. They eventually become black holes. Now, the sun, big as it is, is only an average sun, it's part of a galaxy of stars. They tell us that in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are 200 billion stars. Now our sun's just an average star, but there are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. The sun is about 30,000 light years away from the galactic center. And uh, just as the, the Earth is going around the sun, so the sun and all the stars are orbiting around a galactic center. The whole galaxy is in motion around a center. It uh, will take our galaxy, astronomers estimate, about 230 million years to complete one orbit around its center. But that doesn't mean it's uh, dilly-dallying on the way. It's uh, flying through space. The whole thing is, is revolving on its axis at about 1.4 million miles an hour. So if you uh, feel a little dizzy, that's probably the reason why. Now this is uh, God, you see, just uh, playing around the stars. He just tosses stars into space as you take a handful of marbles and, and throw them in the air. That's nothing to God. Stars. Ten percent of the mass of our galaxy. Now there are about 200 billion stars, but in between those stars is space, and, and in that space is dust. Stars. And uh, 10% of the mass of our galaxy just dust cluttering up space. There's enough dust in the galaxy. Uh, I mean, some of these figures are so staggering that it's just awesome. It doesn't do us any harm once in a while to stretch our minds. It gives us a fresh appreciation of the kind of God we have. Just the dust that's floating around in our galaxy is the equivalent of 465 trillion Earths. That's just the dust. But we're not alone. Our galaxy is only one of an estimated hundred billion galaxies in space, known space. In fact, our total, the total mass of our galaxy, the 200 billion stars and all the stardust that 
makes up our particular galaxy, the total mass of all that, if you could put it all in a scale, weigh it all out, and come to uh, a figure, our galaxy's mass is only one trillion of the mass of the entire universe, as it is currently known. And every every time you turn around, there's a new book on astronomy, and all these figures are hopelessly out of date. They found new things out there they never knew were there before. Now, astronomers have come to the conclusion that eventually the whole thing's going to come to an end. And uh, they, they extrapolate back to a beginning. They've had various theories over the years, this is a steady state theory that things never change very much, and that's all gone over the board now they have what they call the Big Bang Theory, that it all started with the Great Big Bang way back about uh, 10, 16 million years ago, 18 billion years ago. They estimate that the, uh, the, the power that was required to initiate the Big Bang, get all these things purpling out into space, is the equivalent energy to 10 million billion quasars. Now, a quasar is an extraordinary object in space. It looks about the size of a star. But it has the brightness. Now, this is inconceivable. It looks about the size of a star, but it has about the brightness of a hundred galaxies. That's a quasar. There's some of these quasars that they have found are traveling at inconceivable velocities. One of them that they've cataloged is traveling through space at 90% the speed of light. Light travels six trillion miles a year. I mean, this is just in, uh, beyond our powers of imagination. <laughs> when God exploded that first primeval concentration of matter into the universe, if that's the way he did it, the energy required would be the total energy of 10 million quasars, each of which equals 300 billion suns. I mean, can you imagine that? When God came to write up the whole thing in his book, five words, all he took. He made the stars also. That's omnipotent. These figures simply boggle the imagination. There's no way we can even begin to conceive. We write them down and look at them, and they're very impressive on paper. Far more impressive on paper than they are sitting listening to it. But they don't mean anything to us. We can't conceive things like this. Power that it would take to orbit a galaxy. Power that it would take to orbit a hundred billion. That's power. 
That's our God. That's the one we call our Father. I don't know what your problems are this morning, but he's quite able to solve them. He's not only omniscient, as we saw last week, he is omnipotent. He not only knows all about your problems, the only reason he wants you to tell him about him is because you need to do that. He doesn't need to do that. You need to do that. And he's got enough power to take care of your problem, whatever it is. He's not running short on power. He's omnipotent. We think not only of the power of God in terms of natural phenomena, but also in terms of national phenomena. I mean, God controls the nation. I was going to tell you about atoms, but you probably had enough of statistics. Let me just say this, that in a single drop of, of water, uh, water is made up of it's a molecule made up of two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. So you have three atoms that make up a molecule of water. A single drop of water. You dip your finger in the cup and drop a drop of water off the end of your finger. You know how many atoms there are in that drop of water? And one atom could wipe out Nagasaki. How many atoms there are? If you could convert the molecules in a drop of water into grains of sand, just a drop of water, you'd have enough grains of sand to build a concrete highway one foot thick, half a mile wide, all the way from New York to San Francisco. That's how many molecules that are in a drop of water? One drop of water. And they're mostly empty space, of course, and they, they pack enormous power, inconceivable power. When they dropped the first atomic bomb in, in, uh, New Mexico, they built a steel tower of 10-inch rails building 90 pounds to the foot. Built this enormous steel tower. They just detonated that one atomic bomb. It vaporized the tower. It tossed the stuff seven miles into the sky. and left a hole 5,000 feet deep and fused all the sand sand into glass for a radius of 18,000 feet in all directions. And just one atomic bomb. Now, hydrogen bombs, uh, you have to have an atomic bomb to trigger a hydrogen bomb. You can't explode a hydrogen bomb unless you explode an atomic bomb first. When they exploded the first hydrogen bomb, they did it in, uh, uh, on an island in the Pacific Ocean. They... They vaporized the island. The island could be disappeared, and there was a hole left in the, in, in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 175 feet deep. A hole big enough to put 14 Pentagon buildings in the hole. That's just a hydrogen bomb. 
you know, of course, we we haven't uh, tacked on to intercontinental ballistic missiles, and and the Russians are aiming them at us, and we're aiming them at the Russians. And now that madman in in Iraq wants to get a hold of one. So we we naturally turn from God's power in creation. Well, well how come? What about the countries? Can God can control nature? Can He control nature? Well, God is quite able to do that. His power over the nations doesn't always show right now because this is not the age of government. This is the age of grace. At the present time, God is demonstrating something quite different from His government. Uh, God could, could could exercise his government tomorrow morning and it would be all over. He's not doing that. He is now exercising another one of his characteristics, that's his grace. And at the present time, he's putting up with things. And we have to put up with them too, because God is not manifesting his government right now. Except in the very tenuous way that we can't see God, of course, is in control, but he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, people say, well, I remember when I was in the British Army during the Second World War, a soldier said, why doesn't God stop this war? Mm-hmm. Well, he could if he wanted to. But in the first place, he never started it. So why should he stop it? And in the second place, that's not his purpose right now. It is going to be his purpose eventually. But at the present time, he is not operating in government in as much as he directly interferes all the time with human affairs. He's operating in grace. The best uh, book on that subject, of course, is for Andrew, Robert Anderson's book, The Silence of God. And the silence of God is very baffling to a lot of people. They can't understand why God doesn't intervene, why he doesn't stop things, why he lets things go on. It's one of the most puzzling aspects of God's dealings with us. There's so much injustice, there's so much that we would stop. If if we could, we would stop it. Now, God can, but he doesn't. And that raises some horrendous problems in the minds of some people. It's not that he can't, but it's that he doesn't. They've got it down to equation that God is is all powerful and he can't be all loving. Because if he was all powerful, he'd, he'd stop what's going on. But he must obviously enjoy it, so he lets it go on, so he can't be all loving. Or if he's all loving, then he can't be all powerful, because if he was all loving, he'd stop it. It's a vicious circle, they argue around this circle. You get on a college campus and some atheistic professor, that's the first thing you'll stick you with. And most uh, kids, they throw up their hands at that point because they don't know how to deal with it. Well, the solution for that problem lies in the fact that God is pursuing other purposes at the moment. He is not pursuing his purposes in government. He's pursuing his purposes in grace. Calvary shows the extent and the length to which God will go. 
and the length to which he will permit man to go in order to demonstrate his grace. The reason why God is silent is because he's already spoken. He has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. He said the last thing he's ever going to say. When God speaks next time, it's going to be all over. That's why he's silent. Because he's operating today not in government, but in grace. But he is going to operate in government one of these days. And the omnipotent power of God is going to be demonstrated in government. Book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, both tell us what will happen when God finally operates and puts forth his omnipotent power in terms of the nations. There is a mystery, of course, in all this. It has to do with profoundly perplexing equation of the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man. I don't propose to get into that equation this morning, but it's part of this total mystery. The world in which we live at the moment obviously needs somebody to sovereignly take charge. But God at the moment is sovereignly not doing that. Except uh, that he draws the line and says, go that far, but no further. It's all part of a very great and complex mystery that has its solution in the purposes of God, which, uh, as we saw last week, are, are based on his omniscience. He doesn't make any mistakes. <laughs> we think God makes lots of mistakes, but that's because we are man. He's God. We don't understand God. If we could understand God, we'd be God. But the whole world is in a state of turmoil. I... I, I wrote down a couple of pages to prove that, but I'm going to skip over that. You probably don't want to hear it anyway. But one of these days, God's going to say, that's enough. And he's going to come back, and all the mass might of the world is going to be mobilized against him at Megiddo, and he's going to come back, and he's going to see all these armies ranged against him, east and west, mobilized at Megiddo, the whole mass might of the world, backed by all the power and force of the devil himself, and God's just going to say, God's dead. That's all he's going to say. That sword will come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, and drop him, that will be it, it will be all over. That's all he has to do. That's the word of his power. He could say, like be, like was. He could speak worlds into being. He could certainly put a stop to what's going on down here when, he, when the time comes, he will. But in the present age, he's not doing that because he's not operating in government. He's operating in grace. And so you see the attribute of God in his omnipotence displayed in the realm of creation. You also see it manifested at one focal point in time in the resurrection of Christ. Declared, says the Apostle Paul, concerning the Lord Jesus, declared to be the Son of God with power. Dunamis, almighty power. All the power of the Godhead by the resurrection from the dead. 
that is the greatest e- e- exhibition on this planet of the omnipotence of God in terms of human life. He took a man who was God manifest in flesh, who lived amongst us and demonstrated his deity, and yet subjected his deity to the will of his heart. You know what the Lord Jesus did when he lived on earth? Uh, the Lord Jesus as God made him, the Lord Jesus as man made himself available to his Father as God, and his Father as God made himself available to the Lord Jesus as man. And that's what we do when we become saved. We as man make ourselves available to the Lord Jesus as God, and he as God makes himself available to us as man. It's the, that's the equation. And the Lord Jesus sovereignly allowed them to spit in his face and plow his back and crown him with thorns and nail him to a cross and gather around and mock him when he died. When, when Pilate says, don't you know I've got power to release you? He said, you don't have any power over me at all. Except that he did me from Pilate. He put Pilate in his place. But the only time he spoke to him. And they didn't take his life from him when they'd done the worst that they could do. They couldn't kill him. How can you kill God? Manifest in flesh. He said, I... No man taketh my life from me. He said, I lay it down of myself. I have power both to lay it down and to take it again. This commandment that I received with my father when it was all over, he suddenly dismissed his spirit. He said, there you are, Father, it's finished. Now take my spirit. Into your keeping, my soul, soul go down in Hades. I'll, I'll do what has to be done down there. Then I'll come back on, on, on the resurrection morning and I'll demonstrate your power in a new way on this planet. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is a demonstration of the omnipotence of God. In raising a man from the dead. He's been dead for, for, for three days and three nights. The world just uh, went about its business and got on its way and totally ignored what had happened. It looked like it was the end, everything was over. He was locked in the tomb, soldiers marched up and down outside. The disciples were totally demoralized. It went on for three days, three nights, it looked like it was all over. But it wasn't. They couldn't lock him in the tomb, death cannot hold its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, and up from the grave he arose in a mighty triumph for his soul. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his face to reign. Christ arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. That's a demonstration of the omnipotence of God. And you know, you see the same thing not only in the realm of creation and in the resurrection of Christ, but in the results of conversion. There is no power known to man that could take a poor, poor lost, ruined sinner of Adam's fallen race, born in sin, shaken into iniquity, hurrying on to endless pain. Sinner by birth, sinner by choice, sinner by practice. And make him holy and clean and fit for the presence of the thrice holy God before whose holiness the very 
sinless sons of light hide their wings. Well, science can't do that. And psychology can't, can't do that. And religion can't do that. And philosophy can't do that. And legislation can't do that. And good intentions can't do that. The only person who can do that is God. Take a man like John Newton, who sank so low in sin, he ran away from home at the age of 11. Fell in the hands of the press gang, ran away from the Navy, was flogged within an inch of his life. He said, I ran away to sea so that I could be free to sympathize to sank so low, he was actually, he actually sold in the end as a slave, to a slave, black woman in Africa, who delighted the power that she had over him by throwing crust under the table and making him beg the next one. That's how low he sank. That's where sin took Now you can talk uh, Ten Commandments to a man like that and to be a blue in the face. Mm. Not going to do him any good. You can convert him to Islam, that won't change him. God changed, God met him on, on the stormy deck of a, of a sinking ship at sea. And changed Mark the 10th, 1748. It was so important in his life. He had a, he had it written down, he never forgot it. Says the day much to be remembered, he had a, a little plaque that he had on his mantelpiece in his study when he became a, a, minister, a minister of God, one of the greatest men of his generation, bring England back to God. He wrote some of the choicest hymns in our hymn book. How sweet the name of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's him. That John Newton. was once a slave of a slave. The text that he had on his mantelpiece, thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Israel. The Lord thy God is here. That's omnipotent power. Not only in the realm of creation and in the resurrection of Christ, but in the results of conversion. Omnipotent. That's the kind of God we have. He's a God who can do anything, anything consistent with his own purposes and his own character. So, shall we pray? Now, Father, thank you so much for being that kind of a God. It would be terrible if, if we had a God who was all-loving but not all-powerful. And it would be terrible if we had a God who was all-powerful but wasn't all-loving. But we have a God who's both. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for Calvary and the demonstration of that. Resurrection morning. What you did in our own hearts and lives. And we're still doing. And will do one day when you'll make us just like Jesus for all eternity. We give you thanks in his lovely name. Amen. Amen.